Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Startup Diary podcast. I've literally just got off the mics with a chap called Ed Vincent that runs a company called Festival Pass. When digging into Ed's background before the interview, I learned that he was actually the head of data over at MoviePass. And if you don't know about MoviePass, it's worth a very quick Google search, but it was a company that was founded five, six years before anyone had heard about it, scaled extremely quickly and is a marketplace model. And it's probably one of the most dramatic failures that we've heard about in the startup scene in a very long time. And there's some key learnings in this podcast about marketplaces, unit economics, and interesting pricing models. I think you're going to love it. Before we get into the conversation with me and Ed, let's hear from Harry to go through Ed's bio. Thanks, Adam. A bit about Ed Vincent. He is an entrepreneur with over 20 years of business, technology, and management experience, having founded and exited several companies in that time, including helping to launch film festivals in multiple locations and creating the concept for a Maxim-branded hotel in the Caribbean. Most recently, he led a data platform and consultancy in the entertainment space with clients including A&E Networks, AMC Networks, Screen Vision, MovieTickets.com, and was brought in to MoviePass as an interim head of data. He's learned what works and what doesn't work in this space and looks forward to inspiring people to lead active and engaging lives every day by participating in live community events, both locally and globally. So for now, guys, sit back and enjoy this interview with Adam Callow and Ed Vincent, founder of Festival Pass. Ed, firstly, a huge thank you for spending the time on the mics with us today for the Startup Diary listeners. I guess before we get into it, uh, the meat and bones of the show, could you give people a quick introduction to who you are and let's just go through your journey because it's, it's been a full one as an entrepreneur. Sure. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, so uh, I'm an entrepreneur for 20 plus years, um, been in New York City for most of that time. Um, prior to, even though I, I was an entrepreneur as a kid since I was 10 years old, uh, I, I slipped into the corporate world for a little bit. I was an investment banker up until 1999, but uh, decided to uh, leave in 99 to start an internet company in the internet 1.0 days. Um, I, do, do you want me to walk through the uh, the whole journey? or? Uh, so, well, uh, already two things have come up. What do you mean by the fact you're an entrepreneur at 10 years old? And my second point is, did you get caught up in the first bubble due to your timings? Uh, the answer is uh, yes and yes. So, so uh when I was 10, I grew up in a town in, uh, in New Jersey, um, and I, we were the poorest family in, in, a, in a rich town, if that makes any sense. So, uh, you know, people in the town had d- done well, but uh, due to life circumstances, you know, we were uh, four kids in our family and, um, you know, some struggles my parents had that uh, we were, you know, one of the, the poor kids in the, in, in the town. So when at 10 years old, when everybody else had, uh, you know, Nike shoes or something, that they cool that they wanted to wear. Um, you know, my parents didn't have the money, so I had to start working. So I, I had a I used to put together newspapers at a uh, at a luncheonette uh, in order on Sunday mornings in order to uh, you know I don't know if it still even happens today. Newspapers come in twenty different packs, and you have to open them with strings and scissors, and then all the sections get shoved together. And at the end of the day, I would get five dollars and a free breakfast, and I enjoyed that. Wow. Uh, Firstly, I can imagine that being hugely impactful for you from a work ethic perspective at such an early age. Yeah, no, no. uh, And the ironic part about it is that when I look back, you know, a lot of times uh, it's looking back to what was, but at the time I just, I was fine with it. It just, uh, I enjoyed it. I liked it. Um, I never felt I uh, 
didn't have. I just kind of went out and made sure I got what I needed. Love that. Uh, and then we fast forward as part of your journey to 1999 when you left the investment banking world to sort of enter internet 1.0, as you called it. What was your first venture and how did that go? Yeah, well, I mean, pre- previously, ironically, before I even got to that point, I was uh, in college. Uh, I was the only kid with a, a fax machine and a laptop computer in my dorm room. Uh, I, was, I was a real estate appraiser. I, I would value uh, homes because back in the time frame I was in college, um, there was a lot of refinancing going on in the real estate business. And, uh, and back then, you did not need a license to be a real estate appraiser. During, my, during that time frame, you, I had to get licensed because it was at the time of uh, licensing requirements coming in. But by then, I already had thousands of, uh, of hours valuing real estate. So, so the, my, my journey even started prior, prior to that uh, you know, internet 1.0 days. Um, but in 1999, I think the epiphany was uh, a buddy of mine and I uh, used to throw these New Year's parties for all of our friends. And uh, it, was, it was this you know, epiphany that we could actually put it online and uh, have people use their credit card to pay for the ticket rather than what we did for the last you know, five years prior is running around collecting cash from from hundreds of people all uh, to get the money ahead of time to be able to rent the place to have the New Year's party. Um, so that was really exciting. We're like, this internet thing is cool. You can actually send somebody to a website. They can buy a ticket, and all of a sudden now you uh, you know could create efficiency across the board. So that that was the uh, the epiphany. Uh, I left in '99 to start a company called City Stuff with the same friend. Uh, and we sold things that made cities fun. So in New York City, it was Junior's Cheesecake. It was H&H Bagels, New York City Pizza, Flash Frozen, and shipped overnight. So basically anybody outside of the city they grew up in could get a taste of the city the next day. Um, we had fun stuff throughout, you know, New Orleans, uh, hurricane mixers and bidets from San Francisco. We had Dungeness Crabs from Chicago. We had deep dish pizza, you know, stuff like that. I can see a trend knowing your track record and what you've been involved in since and what you're doing now. I can see a trend in terms of what you enjoy out of life in terms of using, it feels like you like to use the internet to either connect people or create experiences from what I can see of your track record. Where do you think, firstly, do you think that's fair and where does that come from in you? Like where, where do you, where do you get your, uh, I guess your ambition or your fire from in terms of the projects that you've worked on? Sure, I, I do think it's fair, and, and as we kind of talk through, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff you'll hear about is um, I, I do choose things that are uh, to be more fun, and I end up always coming back to the things I enjoy, even when I sometimes take a, you know, the wrong fork in the road, and after a few years, say, well, shit, I, I really want to get back to the fun stuff. Uh, I, I find it always interesting when someone uh, suggests either a learning or a failure, because I think they're where we can get most of our. Um, for the listeners of the show, they can get most of the insight from. Uh, if we look at Funny your, notes. yeah, talk, talk to me about one of them. When you, when I ask you the question, what's the first one that stands out and potentially either the most painful or the one that you learned the most from? Uh, what's your failure or learning that you took away from your your career so far? Well, first of all, I think uh, you know just the old adage that nothing is a failure; it's either a success or a learning experience. So, uh, as, as long as you don't do it twice, I think it's fair. <laughs> well, yeah. the same thing twice. <laughs> the same thing uh, twice. Yeah. So a, gr- a great example is uh, even that first company that I mentioned, Internet 1.0. Super exciting. It was my early to mid twenties. Uh, we were having tons of fun. You know, 
for all your listeners, I don't know if they remember back what that felt like. Uh, it was it was kind of the crazy times of the internet 1.0. You know, we didn't have tons of venture capital funding, but a lot of people did, and uh, we were in that same community. So you know, we end up going to parties. You know, that people would spend a million dollars just on a party, uh, just because they just got funded from venture capitals, and uh, and it was just wild. Um, wow. But that was just uh, to be in that time frame. So we uh, had our company. We were doing well. Everything was exciting. Um, we sold it uh, to a company called E-Commerce Solutions in Connecticut, and we sold it for many, many millions of dollars on paper. Um, so we got stock in that other company. Uh, we thought it was, you know, we thought we were millionaires in, in our early mid twenties, and then soon after, probably less than a year after we sold it. Um, not only did the, you know, internet 1.0 kind of, uh, crash happened, uh, very soon after 9-11 happened. So, uh, mm-hmm. effectively wow. that stock in that company went to zero. So when you talk about, I wouldn't call it a failure. I'd call it a realization that, uh, you know, it was a learning experience that it's take cash when you can in an yeah. exit. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. So, um, I've had a good look at your your track record. I guess one of the things that uh, piqued my interest um, in terms of where you are today at Festival Pass, uh, from my understanding, uh, you were previously the head of data over at Movie Pass. That is true. Um, can you just give people an insight in terms of what Movie Pass did? And I can imagine that you were there at some really I'm going to use the word interesting times. And what your key takeaways were from Movie Pass that made you think actually. Uh, festival pass as a business that you run today is viable. Could you just talk talk me through that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the fact, even coming from the UK, that uh, that you know part part of the movie pass story, which is a pretty interesting story in itself. I call it the meteoric rise and fall of a pretty interesting company. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was a uh, in the process. Uh, I had started a. Um, data consultancy and software platform uh, about five, six years ago. Um, and we helped uh, a lot of big entertainment companies understand the consumer data. So um, a networks, AMC networks, these are big uh, television networks within the US um, globally as well. Um, so we had a lot of experience in that space. And uh, as part of my company, I was asked to come in and be the interim uh, chief data officer for MoviePass. Um, that was right at the time where they were kind of taking off. And what that means for your listeners is MoviePass itself had been around since 2012 um, and kind of limped along for a while um, to just really passionate moviegoers where they could pay upwards of $50 to $100 a month in order to go see as many movies as they wanted in the, in the movie theater. Um, and it was a relatively interesting business. And along the early part of the MoviePass days, uh, they came up with some pretty interesting technologies that enabled theaters to re- be required to accept their credit card. So for listeners that weren't MoviePass customers, they may not realize how that all worked. Um, but MoviePass figured something out where all theaters had to take the MoviePass card, even if they didn't have a relationship with MoviePass, because it was created on a, a debit card, MasterCard. And, uh, and as long as... AMC theaters or you name the theater chain in the US or anywhere else uh, accepted a MasterCard debit card, they must accept MoviePass. I didn't know that. The problem with that model is that meant MoviePass was paying 100% of the ticket price 
and didn't have any margin in a lot of the uh, in the transaction. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a balance between making inventory available to everybody quickly and having 97% of all theaters in the U.S. accept MoviePass versus uh, actually having a, a business model that had a margin. Yeah, that's that's that, that, so. Just for for me and the listeners, basically, what we're saying is. Uh, they would pay the ticket and take the hit if that subscriber to MoviePass was seeing multiple films. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So every so I guess there's a number four, five, six films, and all of a sudden you're losing substantial amounts of money per user per month. Yeah. Pr pretty much with the MoviePass world, and yeah, I won't have to get too much into it. It's anything over one per month. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, that's because at the point of growth, um, it was a, actually a brilliant direct marketing idea by the team that was running MoviePass once they uh, got some funding in the public markets. Um, so they dropped it to $10 a month to see unlimited movies when, especially in somewhere like New York City, the average ticket price for a movie is $15. So you see one movie, the company's losing $5. Just out of curiosity, because I've got, because I've got this opportunity to speak to you, how do the unit economics of that business ever work? Like how does that, is it ancillary products? What else is sold to the user to make that financially viable? Yeah, so, so there, there's a couple aspects to it, right? And, and again, we can get into why Festival Pass is a vastly different underlying mm -hmm. economic model, but, uh, but there is a, an approach, right? So in general, the thesis was um, not too dissimilar to the way gyms work, but the problem here is it's a different business, whereas 70% of the people would go less and 20, 30% of the people would go more, but ultimately it would average out to be slightly under uh, that, whatever the metric was to, to make it profitable. It would have been like, I think at the time, 1.2 or 1.3 movies per month would have been okay for the company to still have a margin. Um, but the problem existed is, you know, 20 or 30% of the user base was going, not abusing the system because they were just doing what they were allowed to do, but they were excessively using it therefore making, uh, you know, spending most of the budget and eventually people that might have signed up for it with the anticipation of going and then didn't go for two or three months, eventually they'd cancel because they weren't getting value. Makes sense. The super users were basically taking out all the, all the profit or all the revenue from the business. Correct. Correct. And then, and then there, are, there were other business models, not too dissimilar to, you know, I don't want to compare it to some of the, the big grades, but, you know, Facebook lost tons of money until it was able to monetize it with advertising. Uber subsidizes and did and probably continues to in many markets, subsidizes the uh, transaction in order to get scale so that once scale happens, you can begin to uh, you know, claw your margins back with different activities. Uh, and yes, with MoviePass, one of the goals was with scale, um, 10, 20, 30 million subscribers, the data and advertising opportunities would have exceeded the subsidy cost from the ticket sales themselves. Makes sense. Listen, there's a, there's a whole world of MoviePass intrigue that I have, but I think the thing that I'm most interested in talking about now is what did you take from MoviePass that you, you must have seen something in those days in order to found Festival Pass? Can you just talk me through, I guess, your, your thinking and that part of the journey? Sure, sure. So while being there, there was a lot MoviePass did right, and then, of course, some things that were done wrong. Um, but the things that were done right were, was a couple of things, was knowing that data was super important, understanding the transactional 
um, activity of consumers and what they did um, was super important to uh, all the other parts of the ecosystem. Uh, and that includes um, being able to uh, ascertain who predict what somebody might do next. Um, so that was one thing that was learned. And I began to see that there's other ways to execute the model. Um, so I was looking at industries that I was interested in and live events is a, is a passion of mine. Uh, one of my second companies, I ran an experiential marketing agency through the 2000s, about 70 people, and we executed uh, you know, brands at big, large events. I, I helped build a few film festivals. I owned a film festival down in the Dominican Republic. I really enjoyed live events. Um, so I looked at the industry and I, you know, it was really, again, uh, opening my eyes that the live events industry globally is a $200 billion industry. Uh, when we were working within the movie space in the U.S. or North America, it's about a $12 billion a year um, activity. Um, so first of all, live events was a much bigger industry uh, if you look at it across genre. So music, film, food and wine, all the other stuff. So that was the first thing. The second thing was the um, price elasticity in live events is very different than the movie business. Um, the movie business, the studios control much of the ticket pricing. So I can only speak into the way it works in North America because it is slightly different throughout the world. But in North America, if you um, have a film in the movie theater um, and the price of the ticket is in New York City, $15, um, even when somebody arrives on a Wednesday at 12 noon, they still pay $15, <clears throat> even though there's three people in the theater. If they go at eight o'clock on Friday night when the theater's packed and sold out, they're still paying $15. There's no dynamic pricing in the movie theater space. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why it was hard to get there and MoviePass was trying to push that was the studios control much of the pricing power across the exhibition. So therefore, it was very difficult to create dynamic pricing. In the live events, oh, go ahead, do you want to yeah. on that? Um, at risk of going down the rabbit hole, is there... Is there any justification why the studios wouldn't want dynamic pricing? Because in theory, dynamic pricing adds value to both the seller of a product and the buyer. Like, what's the counter argument? Yeah, so the counter argument, and again, that we could probably do a whole show just on the uh, the movie business and how it works. But um, a lot of the downstream revenue from studio uh, intangible property, uh, intellectual property, happens based upon the theatrical debut. So uh, effectively, when they come out and they require X amount of theaters to have um, the showing at, on X amount of screens. That all calculates into whatever their, their box office is on week one, week two. Then all of the streaming rights, all of the distribution rights, the cable rights, uh, the in the old world DVD rights that happens in the film business are directly correlated to the initial first week of pricing that came out. So, uh, okay. So it, there's a lot that goes into the downstream revenue from the first week of theatrical release. So it's control that pricing as high as possible because the economics down the line are all tied right. back into how many how many how many people see that film in opening week, as an example. Correct. Yeah. So a lot of the times, um, even box office itself is not even if it's a lost leader for a studio, they don't care because they're making it up elsewhere. But for the exhibitor, it's really tough for the theater itself it becomes a tough relationship because they're trying to make the most money they possibly can. Super interesting. Talk to me how uh, festival pricing uh, is different 
Correct. Yeah. So when you look at the the big live events industry is a couple of things is even though there's a few players that in the music business, people think of as being the big elephants in the room, uh, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, AEG, there's still only a small piece of the big pie. Um, so especially globally, uh, when you look at all the events, um, there's thousands upon thousands of rights holders and people that put on an event. So it could be just one group or small individual putting on a 50,000 person concert uh, that grew over time. And they're one of the, the many kind of events throughout the world that aren't controlled by some large singular mechanism, if you will. Um, so there's a lot of dis disparate um, relationships and disaggregation between rights holders. So that's one. So two, when you think of or understand the live events business, there's also the concept that one additional person at a live event, depending upon the industry, and I don't want to you know, get too granular, but usually one additional person at an event is net positive for everybody, um, especially when you're in a general admission environment, not necessarily a seated event or a ticketed event. Um, so there's the ability to um, increase the pie for everybody by having one more person at that event. Um, especially if they're buying concessions, they're buying t-shirts, merch, or you know, a lot of other things that happen. The other thing is that the pricing is so diverse in terms of live events where one event could be $10 and another event could be $300. So having the, the vast disparity between different kinds of events uh, enable uh, significant price inefficiency. So those are a few of the pricing elements. Um, there's, there's more, uh, and again, you know, uh, I know we only have limited time to get too far. Into yeah, it. I, I guess uh, my, my jumping off point here is it'll be a great opportunity for you to share what Festival Pass is and just to go into your pricing model because from an outsider looking into a, a fragmented market is surely developing a new pricing system is more complex or is that where you saw the opportunity? So would you like to share what Festival Pass does and then talk to me about how your pricing system works? Sure, absolutely. So, um, Festival Pass is built as a marketplace, right? So we call it a, uh, a the world's first subscription marketplace for all live events across genre. Um, so by saying across genre, we're talking about, you know, even though festival is the go-to-market from a brand perspective, and mm -hmm. there's a reason for that, is festivals evoke emotion, it evokes uh, community, it evokes excitement, it makes people think of you know, a music festival. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really about building community. And anytime you're going out to any live event, you're building a community. So it includes, you know, the, the local um, beer and oyster festival in Williamsburg, Brooklyn versus, you know, the big three-day music festival in Coachella, Coachella you know, in, in California mm -hmm. um, and everything else in between. There's uh, Broadway events, um, you know, theater, uh, tech and innovation events, um, sports all the things that are related to just being physically at a live event. Um, so the reason why we're, we really kind of came into the pricing model we did is we've learned along the way from successes and failures, right? So as I mentioned, MoviePass, I wouldn't call it a failure. They just had some complications based upon the business model. And what I realized was that the most successful marketplaces um, have different fundamentals and the live events industry has the fundamentals to really be a very successful marketplace. And a couple of those things are the type of inventory, um, such as the heterogeneous inventory versus the homogeneous inventory. So an example is Airbnb, 
is a heterogeneous inventory in a unique marketplace. So every property Airbnb puts on their platform, it's different. So a chateau in France might be $1,500 a night, you know, uh, a spare bedroom in, you know, Johnny's treehouse might be $10 a night. So there has to be some concept of different pricing that exists mm -hmm. for that inventory. Um, so the way people can actually build a marketplace around that is just identifying and understanding that inventory and then looking at some of the other fundamentals. So uh, the second thing is if you're going to build a marketplace, you really have to understand the pricing mechanism of the volume. So you, if you're Uber or Lyft, you have a high volume, low transaction price. So you might use it three, four, five, six times a month. Maybe it's $5, $10, $20. Um, so as long as you have high volume in your transactions, you can make money off of the marketplace. Um, the flip side on Airbnb is that you have a couple hundred dollar night, but they might only use it one or two times a year. So with Festival Pass, by having local events and also having some of the big, exciting national or global events, we have the benefit of both. People may or hopefully will be using Festival Pass to go to uh, you know, a wine tasting on a Wednesday night, a concert on a Friday night, all within their own home local community. And then maybe every few months they pack up with friends and they go off to, you know, a weekend <clears throat> festival or concert, um, you know, that they might have to drive to, or they might be within, you know, some kind of travel distance for them. If, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, you're probably thinking the same as me right now, which is with, with so much information out there, how do you just talk to me about how you've worked out how to pull the information in and then build a subscription-based model that works off off credits. Like when I when I started to do some digging into your pricing mechanism, I thought one I thought it was super interesting. So it created a uh, quite a lot of excitement for us to jump on the mics and, and talk about it. Um, but how does your pricing system works when you have such differences of um, events, local events to 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 the national ones? Um, can you just talk me through that? Uh, there's a bunch of questions that I've got here on my left hand side of my screen as we talk, but I think it's probably best for, for you to for you to kick off. Sure. So I'll give two aspects to it. Um, one, the easiest way to explain it is for anybody old enough to have been to an arcade back in the day where they would give tokens to play video games. Um, at least for myself, you know, I'd walk into an arcade, uh, you know, as a teenager and put $10 in the machine and get a bunch of tokens out. Um, then I'd go into the arcade and a pinball machine might be one token, but a big shoot 'em up, you know, dynamic game or racing game might be five tokens. And it was up to me to decide how I spent the tokens I just got for my $10 that I just put in. So it's the example of, uh, that was one of the first examples to me of you choose how you spend your tokens or how you spend your dollars. Well, but I, but in interestingly, uh, for that is I don't have the option to go in and just spend uh, $1 on um, one game and $5 on the other. Uh, where it comes to festivals, there is public pricing available. Um, sure. So how, how do those two things translate? Sure. So two things. Uh, I'll answer that, but let me give credit to a, another company that kind of paved the way to moving into the credit model um, that, that kind of created some of the inspiration. Um, there's a company called ClassPass. I don't know if you have that in the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's basically um, a lot of uh, classes for exercise. Um, so a yoga class, a Pilates class, a spin class, um, all of, they've aggregated thousands of these classes um, throughout the globe. And 
and they early on they had all the same problems MoviePass did, where they were trying to say, "Hey, pay fifty dollars a month and go to any class anywhere," and they were losing money. Then they said, "Hey, we'll we'll do a model where you can go to three classes, any kind you want, uh, Pilates, yoga, whatever, three a month, forty dollars, whatever the price is," and they were having problems. And then about three and a half, four years ago, um, the team there took the pains to turn it into a credit-based model, and that allowed them to take all of the different pricing for the classes that people were going to and actually create uh, positive unit economics for every transaction. So that was some of the inspiration uh, when I look back to it. So now applying that to what you just mentioned is the credit model we have for festivals and events. There's, there's a concept of adding this subscription element to it because by having the subscription element to it, people are committing to, um, to spend a certain amount of dollars on a monthly basis to receive the credits than to use them. So what that enables us to do is it enables us to negotiate discounts uh, or pricing um, volume discounts with a lot of the um, partners. So the ability um, for us to know that we have X amount of members that will be pushing to some of these events enables you know, a festival or a group of people to say, well, of course, We'll, we'll do a rev share with you on that event. We then take that pricing discount, if you will, and I don't want to even use the word discount because it's really just a member benefit, and we translate that into something that will work both for creating margin for us while at the same time creating value for our consumer. Um, and then we continue to look on a daily and, and you know daily basis to add more and more value to the membership program. So by becoming a member of Festival Pass, Yes, you will get better pricing in general than you would if you went directly to buy a ticket. Um, but you'll also, you'll also begin to see a lot more interesting, unique value propositions, uh, whether that's an upgrade to a VIP pass, whether that is an invite to an event that's not even made available to the public, whether that is you know the ability to, um, trying to think of a good example, ability to you know, be invited to a virtual festival down the road only for pass holders. Th things, that, things that will continue to add that um, will enable people to find value. The second thing from a um, transactional perspective is, um, and this is no push against some of the ticket, ticketing companies out there, they, they just have a different model, but um, nobody that I ever meet say, hey, I really enjoyed going to big ticketing company, buying a ticket, and on the way out, paying a $20 toll for, for my transaction fee for buying that ticket. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no social aspect traditionally to ticketing. And what we're building is a community so people can actually have the feeling of membership, the social interactivity, the ability to see what their friends within the platform are doing, what events they're going to, what are they commenting on. Uh, and then on top of all that, there's no transaction fees. Um, and that tends to be where some of the pricing value is. And the reason there's no transaction fees is because of our own currency, we're able to just redeem and apply credits. So while we're transacting and hitting their credit card on a monthly basis in order to charge them for the membership, when they redeem something, we don't have the burden of another credit card transaction fee uh, in order to uh, redeem 10 credits, five credits, 30 credits for a specific event. It's really just a, you know, think of it as a blockchain concept. It's really just a ledger adjustment like there's um there's two 
I just want to actually just pass a compliment before I, I dig in. Um, the way that you the way that you speak about it, Ed, and communicate it, I think it's extremely valuable for the listeners. Um, uh, I think you're just extremely clear on your thought process, which is always fun to interview someone that does the heavy lifting for me. Um, t- two questions from my side. Uh, one, we mentioned at the top of the show uh, the movie pass. Um, mechanism, which was because it was built on top of a debit and credit card that was accepted in most places, they got to 97% acceptance rate. Sure. What what do you have to do in Festival Pass? Does that mean you have to be, go and broker deals with all events or how are you getting the inventory onto the platform in the first place? Great question. So uh, I, I, I talk to my team about this often about, it's a, it's a marketplace, right? So the more inventory you have, the easier it is to get the consumer. The more consumers you have, the easier it is to get the inventory. So there's there's always this balance of building the marketplace from both sides. Um, again, I, I'm going to use some American analogies, uh, and maybe you have very similar concepts in the in, in the UK. But when you go to a retail store in New York City, there's drugstores called Dwayne Reed, which are like Walgreens. There's probably many of those throughout the UK. Um, and you walk into the store, or any retail store. It's the same problem, right? They need a lot of products to attract people to come in to be able to buy things and have convenience, but not every item in that store has the same margin. So what happens is they, they open the retail store and they start selling you know, a branded milk or branded toothpaste or branded whatever. And over time they learn and all of a sudden they start having a house brand. You know, is it the house brand toothpaste or is it Crest? And eventually, the margin increases based upon some of the products they're selling in the retail store. The analogy isn't direct because we're not going to create our own festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the analogy is the concept of even if we have lower margin product from day one, over time, we'll expand that margin by continuing to um, offer uh, more value to the direct relationships coming in. So. When, when we go directly to an event and we say, hey, we're going to um, bring you onto the platform, it's much easier for us to negotiate a big enough discount that creates a margin for us and creates value to the consumer. It's very hard to do that with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of events because you need a big sales force to do so. So what we've done to seed the initial inventory is we're working with other aggregators, other people, other ticketing companies that have already done a lot of the hard lifting uh, in order to pull in thousands of events. And the beauty of technology, it's really an API call. So if somebody's already aggregated a lot of events and they put it into their database in order to distribute and sell those events, um, it now is easy to access through an API and suck it into our environment and we just have to do one deal to get thousands of events rather than to do thousands of deals. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Um, and it also sort of feeds nicely onto my next question was, uh, again, previously mentioned Uber as an example in terms of their, their go-to-market and how they subsidize the costs. Um, one thing I learned about Uber is their sort of city-by-city city approach. What's Festival Pass's go-to-market? Obviously, if you can aggregate the data through an API of someone that's already got it, you could, in theory, switch it on and just go nationwide pretty quickly. Uh, but getting the other side of the marketplace is traditionally also problematic to get people to be aware of it. How are you getting your customers to be aware of Festival Fast and are you going location by location? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. So agreed. Um, it is, we, we do have uh, events and, and uh, festivals nationwide, but in order to be efficient in marketing spend, we do have to take a, a localized approach. 
you you passed it without even realizing it, but that's one of the other four fundamentals in building a marketplace. I, I mentioned a couple of the other two, the, the inventory types as well as the, the pricing mechanism or the transaction volume. But one of the bigger ones of the four fundamentals is root density versus global density. So Uber, Lyft are absolutely the root density marketplaces, meaning that one can exist within a local market um, all by itself. So you could have Uber only in New York City. Because as long as you have enough drivers and you have enough passengers, you have a marketplace. Um, so that's a long way of saying, <clears throat> yes, we are having inventory across the U.S. first, but we're focused on New York, Atlanta, Miami, L.A., Chicago, the bigger cities, because that's where there's more of the consumer base and there's more of the inventory, meaning that there just happens to be more live events happening within those environments. Um, and then we'll, we'll expand from there. Makes complete sense. Uh, listen, I've I could probably hold you on the mics for another hour and a half because uh, one, I'm enjoying the conversation, and two, um, marketplace dynamics is something that uh, in the business that I run, we've had to struggle with and try and navigate. And I've personally picked up a couple of things uh, already in this interview that I should probably be thinking more deeply about. Uh, I guess just to draw us to a close, could you just share with us probably the biggest learning that you've had since starting Festival Pass? Um, and I guess most importantly from your side for giving up the time is where can people go and learn more about what you're doing? Sure. So, um, the biggest learning, let me, uh, let me think through that for a moment. I would say the, the biggest learning probably is, you know, something we did just touch on that, it, that there are sources of inventory out there and there are, um, relationships to have that, it benefits everybody to get more inventory more quickly, even if the margin's lower. Uh, it, 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 it's about building relationships. And then I saw other companies and, you know, the, one of the ones you previously mentioned uh, had some challenges where they tried to disrupt an industry and had, had um, negative relationships with mm -hmm. parties within it. Um, one of my learnings and goals is to work well with everybody, not try, not to, to try and, take away somebody else's business in the industry, but try to just be a player that improves the overall ecosystem for the consumer and isn't trying to, you know, take away. And because I think it's really hard to go up against the grain of something that exists. It's an evolution, not a revolution. Uh, you're very, uh, very politically correct in saying there's a reason that Uber has a $250 million war chest for legal fees every month. Um, but I absolutely like the way that you're trying to evolve it compared to change it, which is uh, uh, evolution over revolution. I really like that one, actually. That's probably the soundbite for the show. Uh, and, and if people are listening to this right now, Ed, where, where should people go? If, if our listeners right now are thinking uh, either Ed's a really smart guy, where can I go and listen or read or learn more about what you're working on? Or if they're a festival or let me just say a live events lover uh, not just festival if they're a live events lover where do they go to learn more about festival pass sure so festival pass it's easy it's just festivalpass.com you're going to find that anywhere and everywhere um uh, as well as any social media outlet from a consumer side instagram facebook snapchat etc uh for me personally most the easiest way to find me is linkedin um that's where i tend to spend most of my business time when it comes to kind of social environments. So it's just, uh, you know, Ed Vincent on LinkedIn and uh, I'm on there. Perfect, Ed. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, are there any parting words before we wrap this up? Um, parting words. Uh, just grateful. I appreciate you having me on. Cheers, Ed.